Well, as they're leaving, let's go ahead and pray and seek the Lord and hear what he has to say. Uh, Dear God, we are so grateful for yet another day of life. God, we don't take that for granted, that you have allowed us to have breath in our lungs. Uh, And so, God, we just say thank you. Lord, we pray that as we enter into your scripture, that you would speak to us. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would be working in us to do a work that only you can do, which is a divine, mysterious thing. And we pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen. All righty. So in 1563, nestled in the Rhine Rift Valley in Heidelberg, Germany, some ministers and theologians got together and they created something called the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, to myself and Dalen, we were talking about this. We're kind of nerdy for this thing. Uh, but the Heidelberg Catechism is basically, uh, it's, it's some teachings or on the core doctrines of the Christian faith. And so there, it's set up in a question and answer format. There's 129 questions that go throughout the 52 um, weeks of the year. And so they got together and they created this catechism. Uh, for people like me, people like you who follow Jesus. And there's one particular question that the Heidelberg Catechism um, puts up that I want us to consider. And it is the question, how does the resurrection benefit us? How does the resurrection benefit you and how does it benefit me? And the Heidelberg Catechism answers in this way. It says, first, By his, Jesus's resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to new life. And third, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. I want to take a second to to break down that answer because I think it's important that we talk about all three of them, but we're going to focus on one of them mainly in this message. So Pastor Kevin DeYoung, he breaks down the first benefit by saying that the resurrection means the death of Jesus was enough, that it was satisfactory. It was enough to atone for sin, enough to reconcile us to God, enough to present us holy in God's presence. Christ won. Sin, death, and the devil lost. That's the good news of the empty tomb. Now, I want to skip over the second benefit, and we'll come to it in a second. But the third benefit, it says that Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. You see, one day, followers of Jesus, you and I, who have died, will be resurrected to gloriously new bodies, bodies that only heaven can put its stamp of approval on. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says this, it says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, when I read that scripture, it was lost on me a little bit. And so I'm like, what, what, what is it trying to say? And so I went to Eugene Peterson's version. You may know it as the message version. 
And he says this, and I love the way he puts it. He says, but the truth is that Christ has been raised up and the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. That is some powerful imagery. In fact, when I read Eugene Peterson's version, the message version, and I read that scripture, I, I began to cry a little bit because I got it. I got overwhelmed at the thought that and imagined at the thought uh, that my loved ones who have died in Jesus Christ were going to one day get up out of the grave and have their bodies fully restored. It excited me. In fact, I had to text Cherish and I had to text my my family members and say, look at this scripture. Look at the good news that is a benefit for us, that we will have resurrected bodies one day. And so that is something to think about. How kind of the Lord to give us resurrected, gloriously new bodies. But then the second benefit that the Heidelberg Catechism says, by his power, we too, and here's a key word, are already, already raised to new life. You see, we don't have to wait until we die to experience resurrection power. We get to experience the resurrection power right now, today, if we've already given our lives to Jesus Christ. We've already moved from a state of spiritual death and separation to a state of spiritual life and an unbreakable relationship with God. And this is great news. And so today I want us to think about with our new life fueled by resurrection power that we must realize that we've become bold people. We've been resurrected in boldness. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 12. And so if you have your phone or a Bible, or you can also look up on the screen, uh, we're going to read that and see what to do with this newfound spirit-empowered boldness that we get as resurrected people. And so it reads like this in Acts Chapter 4, verse 5. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom you crucified, and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. 
to give you a little context of where we are, Peter and John, and, and Dave talked about this last week, Peter and John had uh, were in Jerusalem and they were going into the temple and there was a man who was lame. He could not walk. He could not move. And so he was begging. He was it's almost like alms for the poor type of deal, begging, asking if they would give some money. And the famous words were said from Peter that silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give unto thee. And what he offers him is the good news about Jesus Christ. And what he does is he tells the man to get up and walk. And the man miraculously gets up from his lame, crippled situation and he walks. And what happens is, is that after that miraculous uh, healing, um, the, the, the priest and the captain of the temple police hear about this and they're upset. They're upset. So they confront John and Peter. And when they go to confront them, they eventually arrest them. And so where we picked up in verse five is when uh, it's the next day after Peter and John have been arrested and they're going to meet with what's called the Sanhedrin. Maybe you've heard that term before, but what it is is just a big fancy term for the ruling Jewish religious council. It consisted of 71 individuals, the, the high priest and his family, his posse, his entourage, however you want to call it. And then you have the, the Jewish aristocracy, the, the moneyed and land, the gentry, if you will, of the Jewish culture. And then you have the scribes who are like the Old Testament PhDs of the day. And so this, this 71 members, 71 men have called forth Peter and John to be challenged. And so I want to, I want to talk a little bit for a second though about these names in verse six that Annas, the high priest and Caiaphas, John and Alexander. And you see, there, there's something there that we don't know immediately under the surface from just reading those names. Annas is kind of like the godfather of all the high priest, okay? And he used to be the high priest and he still holds some residual power while Caiaphas, he is the son-in-law of Annas. And Caiaphas is the current high priest for the temple. So Annas still has his claws and clutches in the religious elite, okay? He, he didn't just go off somewhere, but he still is involved. Now, John and Alexander, scholars don't really know who they are, and so we're not certain. But Annas and Caiaphas, we know. And another interesting thing to note is that Caiaphas and Peter kind of have some tension going on for several reasons, for several reasons. One is when Jesus had been arrested and betrayed by Judas, he went before the same 71 member board, the Sanhedrin, and they sent him over to Pilate and Pilate sent him over to Herod to be contemned, condemned to death. So there is some history already with the disciples uh, and this Sanhedrin, this leadership team, this council. And the other thing to be noted is that Caiaphas had an assistant named Malchus. Now, why does this matter? It matters. It's a little bit interesting to me. I hope you find it interesting, too, is that Caiaphas had this assistant named Malchus and Malchus was with 
the temple guard when they came to arrest Jesus after Judas had betrayed them. And what happens is that Peter gets hot up under the collar and in a lot of boldness, he can't handle himself. He pulls out his sword and he cuts off the right ear or the left ear. I'm not really certain. He cuts off an ear of Malchus, who is the assistant to Caiaphas. So when Caiaphas sees Peter and John here at the council, he's already got it out for Peter. Okay, so let that be known in the back of your mind. So when we come to this and we get to verse seven. And Peter and John are standing in front of this council. I imagine that Annas, that he asked a very, he asked this very pointed question. He says, by what power or in what name have you done this? Have you done this? Now, that this could refer to two things. Probably refers to both. It refers to one, the healing of this lame man outside of the temple, but also it could refer to and probably does refer to them preaching about the fact that there was a Jesus who had been crucified, but had got up from the grave and that that changes everything. And so that this is powerful. And so these men, these 71 men want to know what authority, by what authority, by what intellect, by what power, By what accreditation do you dare to speak about a resurrected Lord? And so they are taken in by this. And so I want us to think, when have you been challenged? Because that's what's happening. When have you been challenged for your faith? Because these men are being challenged directly about their faith in the risen Savior. But then we go on and I think we get to probably one of the most important parts of this text or the part that gets me most excited. In verse eight, it says, then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. When I read this, it makes me think of a song that my dad would sing when I was back home in South Carolina. And it's an old song and it sounds a little weird, but it says this. It says, you ought to been there when the Holy Ghost fell on me. Now, to some of us, that might sound a little strange, right? But it, it conjures this image of fire falling down on someone. It conjures this image of something taking place where the Holy Spirit arrests you and takes you and does something to you, brings about some experience that you cannot put your finger on. Something divine happens. And so my dad would sing this song and he would say, you ought to be there. And he would go on, you ought to have been there, you ought to have been there. And it goes on and it just gets to this part where you call it, we call it the running in my family when when you sing it. And then we just say, um, uh, when the Holy Ghost, when the Holy Ghost fell on me. I know my family's watching, so they're probably singing this with me. When the Holy Ghost fell on, oh, Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost fell on me. And then we just sing that song and we would sing it for probably, it felt like 10 minutes, y'all. But it, it, it went on literally for 10 minutes. And so, and, and, and this image of the Holy Ghost falling on you can is synonymous with this idea of being filled with the Spirit. You see, we got to take it back to Acts chapter 2 for a second to understand a little bit about this feeling of the Holy Spirit. Because Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, which is like the birthday of the church, and the Holy Spirit came and rested on people. Okay, the Holy Spirit began to 
fill people in a new way. The Holy Spirit didn't just live on the outside of people, but came to live on the inside of people. And this was a major turning point in the history of salvation in the world. But Peter here, he's already been filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So what is this different feeling? Well, it's like this idea that you get a refilling, like you refill your pitcher, right? When you, or you refill your, your drink to get some water, um, right? And so he's getting this new filling of the Holy Spirit. It's a designated feeling that brings about boldness. Now, the thing to note is that Peter already had a bunch of boldness for everybody because Peter was this personality that had spunk and sass, right? Uh, But he had a personality-driven boldness. But here in verse 8, when it says he's filled with the Spirit, he's getting a Spirit-empowered boldness. It's different. How are they different? Well, personality-driven boldness is set uh, is about accomplishing what an individual desires to do. Right. Uh, It's what an individual desires to do. But spirit empowered boldness aims to see God receive glory. That's the difference between the two. And so Peter, in his personality driven boldness, gets that much more bold when the spirit falls on him, when the Holy Ghost fell on him. And then he answers them in this way because he's bold. He says, you rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man by what he was hit, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he gets really specific. He said, whom you crucified. Now, when he said that, that had some bite on it, because remember, these are the people who actually sent Jesus off to his death. And so when he when he says this, he is bringing up and solidifying for us that there is Jesus and that him and his incarnation in his person mattered, that he had a story and a history and he came from from someplace, Nazareth. And so it mattered and that he was crucified. It acknowledges his death. But then it gets to this part, whom God raised from the dead. This is something that changes everything. Right. That this is the story of Israel, uh, of, uh, of resurrection. This is the story of us today that we can be raised and resurrected people because God raised his son, Jesus, from the dead. And then he goes on to verse 12. After he's responded to their challenge, he makes a mighty declaration. And this is where I want to spend the rest of our time is in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under which heaven under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. That claim is exclusive. That claim is one that puts boundary markers on what on how we live our faith. That claim says that not every religion leads to heaven. That claim says that you can't know God through every religion. You can't know God through Buddhism, through uh, through uh, Hinduism, through Islam. You cannot know through Baha. You cannot know through any other religion. You can only know through Jesus Christ. That's the claim that he makes. This is Peter who is talking, who has literally seen with his own eyes 
denies the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. He makes this claim. And he says this back to the council. He says, and you guys rejected him. But he has been made the cornerstone, the foundation of all things. Romans 10, 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. John chapter 14, verse 6 says, I, Jesus answered and said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, why does these things matter? Why does it matter that, that there's no other name under heaven that can save? Why does it matter that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father to know God except through him? And it's because of something that's said a little bit earlier in Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 Maybe you are familiar with the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Well, the book of Acts has a Great Commission as well. And Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says this. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, Peter's spirit-empowered boldness led him to speak up and proclaim the good news about who Jesus was and that he had been raised by the power of God. And his boldness is also our boldness because the spirit lives in us. But the Acts 1-8 part says that we are witnesses. That Acts 1-8 part says that we have a power, that there is a purpose to the power, and that there is a plan for that power. And that plan is for us to share the good news all around the world and in our local spheres of influence. And so today we should bring our power that is brought about from the resurrection and we should be proclaiming the good news that there is no salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no other name under heaven. That is our responsibility, but that responsibility has been given to us with a power and with a boldness. And so let us think on that today. And I want to lead us in a time of prayer. And so I ask you to close your eyes and we want to meditate on the Lord for a second here. I want you to think about and to pray about and to thank God for the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is, he's our helper. He's our advocate. And he fills us. So take a moment to just thank God that you have the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is keeping you holding you, directing you and guiding you in your pain, in your frustrations, in your insecurities. The Holy Spirit is keeping you, guiding you, holding you, comforting you, watching over you, and emboldening you. So thank God. All right.
now I want to encourage you to ask God to remind you of the boldness he's given you through the Spirit. And ask him, who does he need you to be confidently, carefully, graciously bold with? Who does he need you to be like Peter in front of this council with? To say, we have a crucified Jesus, but he's been resurrected. Ask the Lord for a name, a face. an individual that you need to share just the simple truth that, hey, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was raised. Now ask the Lord to help you be bold enough to actually share. And ask the Lord to help you commit in obedience to who he's shown you. it's easy to get frustrated about the exclusive claim of the gospel. But ask him to give you joy in that. Lord Jesus, we come to you ready to be your emboldened witnesses. To live as resurrected people. We pray this in your name, Lord.